from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And our telephone number, if you want to join the national conversation here, late night, live, 866-505-4626, our legacy line, or, of course, 833-4-VALDEZ. Now, I want to get into what I think is arguably the um, biggest story of the day, and it's been the biggest story of the weekend, uh, which is the shooting in Texas. And, uh, and there's multiple angles on this story. It's it's, uh, it's a tragedy. Obviously, uh, nine killed uh, children included. Uh, just absolutely horrible. Happened in Allen, Texas, which is uh, in the Dallas area. And horrible. And, and honestly, it was um, a, a not really um, trending story until, until the government uh, said that they'd found some postings from this individual online and that there were, let me see the wording that they used because I find that interesting. Let's see here. Uh, Here it is. Listen to this headline. Texas mall shooter ranted against Jews, women, and racial minorities on an apparent social media page. That was at that moment is when this story uh, the fact that nine people were killed, uh, children among them, and my condolences to those families, um, absolutely horrible. But it, it it was until that time, and I find this this in and of itself to be very disparaging. It's a a disgusting phenomena, if you will, the fact that there's outrage now because they believe that this guy uh, had interacted with with accounts uh, that were linked to white supremacy or whatever. And again, it's a, it's probably a stretch at best. The guy is a, a mentally ill uh, Hispanic guy, Mauricio Gonzalez, who doesn't look like a neo-Nazi, doesn't have a neo-Nazi name. And I, I guess that doesn't, you know, make you a neo-Nazi, right? I think um, that there are, I'm sure there are people that have interests that are not aligned with their own. I'm sure that's a thing. You know, I mean, we see it in politics. We see it all over the place. So, I mean, you really could have a brown guy that is the 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 face of um, white supremacy, I guess. You could have it. It, just, it seems unlikely to me that this guy would go on a shooting rampage uh, because of that. And in reality, I think that the big issue here is that he was uh, a former military man. And he didn't get out of infantry school because of his mental illness. And it was known that he had this mental illness. And again, if, if things were the way they were supposed to work, the way they're supposed to work, this might be uh, something potentially that we could avoid, right, um, by, by understanding the situation better. But, but we don't know. And um, what, what's interesting is that the investigators haven't yet made public what drove this uh, army veteran 
Mauricio Garcia, excuse me, I, I called him Gar- uh, Gonzalez, uh, to open fire on on the uh, the folks at that mall. But what we, we do know is that he was unsuccessful as a soldier, and it was because of his mental health issues. And I think there's there's really a need to focus on this area, right? Because you have to be a special kind of, you fill in the word, right? I'm going to use stupid, a special kind of stupid to think that that this is normal and that this is because you can buy a gun, right? I mean, there's lots of people that buy guns. There's tons of guns in the country. People don't behave this way. Crazy people behave this way. And, you know, as a kid, I remember the the slogan or the catchphrase, people don't kill people or guns don't kill people. People kill people. And it made sense to me as a little kid. And there was always debate over that. And there's still debate over it. I mean, here we are, I don't know, 35, 40 years later from the first time I've heard those words. And still, we're still in the same place where we are constant. We use this term gun violence as if it's a real thing, as if there are violent guns. And it happen, every time it happens, we bring up this term again. And we just stick with the word and we allow it to become part of our daily lexicon, gun violence. Yeah, there, there's a, a phenomena, a, a pandemic, an epidemic of knifings, of stabbings in London, all over Europe. It's the popular way to get people in, in uh, amongst many of the immigrants coming into to that area, uh, like the people who've taken over Paris. It's like a homeless encampment uh, under under the Eiffel Tower. And the same thing happened in Germany. And it's fascinating how that didn't happen. You know, Germany 30 years ago didn't have this knifing problem. London didn't have this knifing problem. People weren't getting knifed all over the place. But it's on the rise, and it's because that's just the weapon of choice and the way these guys do their thing. It's not knife violence. It's those crazy people who have a knife in their possession. And I think that this is not a distinction without a difference. This is really important. We have to really figure out how to help people and stop people that are crazy. All right, I, I'm a proponent, and good thing I'm not running for president, but I think if people are criminally insane, we should have a place for those people. You know, and I'm pretty sure there's people that will debate me and send me all sorts of stuff, and I'll get a lot of hate for saying this, but people have always criticized the United States for being one of those places where we, we have more people incarcerated than, than most other countries. And I would always argue, well, I think it's because we have a, a, a more effective system of justice. And because at one point we had these places called, um, you know, penitentiaries or homes for the criminally insane, because there is a population of people, right? Just like dogs. Most people see dogs and they love dogs and they're just the most adorable, most loyal animal you could ever find. But there are some dogs that lose it for whatever reason. And not that they're trained to do that, that they actually do. You know, family dogs that have been in the family forever, and when they get older, they just flip out and attack somebody in the family and maul them or whatever. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens. And, and there's a fate for animals like that. And I don't see humans that behave that way any different. I really don't. I, I think that if you are a person, whether it's attacking children or, in this case, uh, a veteran of the armed service, 
who couldn't hang in the army and came out and couldn't find the help he needed. I would hope he finds the help he needs. I hope there's medication for him. I hope there's therapy. I hope there's support. But if there isn't, then there needs to be a place for a person like this. Otherwise, the place that he's going to find is the place that he's at right now, right? And there's reports that um, the hero cop sprinted towards the shooter with the um, with the rifle to, uh, to take him out. And kudos to the cop who did that. And, uh, and there's uh, some reports out about that as well, that the Allen, Texas cop who put the end to this by, uh, by killing the, um, the shooter, or as in the words of uh, his chief, who said he identified the shooter, neutralized the shooter, neutralized the threat, which I thought was, uh, that's the way it's got to be, that he, um, he really sprinted towards this um, rifle and everybody else was running away. And that's, I think that's the job and that's what, what he signed up for and we're grateful for heroes like that. But I want to continue our discussion on mental health because the, the veterans are important to us. I think we, we, need, we owe them a debt of gratitude and, and in so much as helping them and acknowledging them and, and honoring them, we have to support them when it comes to these issues of mental health. And straight ahead, I want to talk to Gary Sinise who's been an advocate for veterans since you saw him as Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. He's been excellent on this issue, and he's also going to be at the uh, Memorial Day Parade in, uh, in, in D.C. honoring veterans as well and the fallen. So we're going to chat with him a little bit straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And we're having a discussion on the military and the importance of supporting our military in the area of uh, mental health and other areas. And obviously, um, there, there are some out there that are really familiar with these issues. Uh, you may know our next guest from his roles in movies like Apollo 13, The Green Mile, CSI New York, or is I'm going to say one of the biggest roles because it was such a big film and has spanned so many generations of playing Lieutenant Dan in the movie Forrest Gump. Uh, but actor Gary Sinise has really um, been changed by that role. And uh, he, it was inspiring for him so much so that he started an organization, the Gary Sinise Foundation. And uh, this year he's being honored to serve as the honorary grand marshal for the National Memorial Day Parade in Washington, D.C. Gary Sinise, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Rich. You bet. Um, you know, we were just talking about how, how important mental health are, really all veteran services, but mental health comes to mind because of this tragedy that we saw coming out of Texas. And and, and I'm thinking, you know, you know better than most what, what areas uh, – of support are available for veterans and what areas lack. And uh, in your estimation, would do you feel like there's enough support for veterans in the area of mental health? Uh, I don't think there's ever enough that we can mm-hmm. do for our veterans. There's so many veterans uh, struggling uh, silently out there. Uh, and you never know because uh, so many of them just keep it to themselves and they never re- reveal what they're going through. And 
we're very proactive at the Gary Sinise Foundation in trying to reach out to people to make sure that they know that there are services that we provide and that there are other services uh, that other organizations that I've supported over the years provide. Uh, we have to be proactive. It's a it's a terrible epidemic, really, because again. Uh, you can be going along just fine and think that everything's fine with your body. And next thing you know, uh, you find out something tragic has happened. And that's, that's very distressing. I, I recently had a, an, another buddy of mine take his own life and, um, and oh, nobody man. really saw it coming. Um, uh, so it can, it, it can be a silent killer, and uh, we want all our veterans out there to know that there are multiple services that are provided for them, not just at my foundation, but there, there's, there's so many avenues that they can turn, and so many of them don't seek that kind of attention. They don't seek that kind of help. They don't know it exists right. in, in, in so many ways, but, but there are services and support systems out there for you. And we we don't want anyone to struggle in silence. We want them to to reach out. And really I think I think one of the great greatest things or one of one of the things that's that's most definitely needed is for the military members, the brothers and sisters in arms to take responsibility for their their fellow warriors and to always you know be be the buddy system out there because right. the government can't do it the nonprofits can't always do it and i really think the biggest ingredient in saving someone's life or getting someone help is people that you are close to and your family members and your right. Your, again, your your fellow uh, service members, they need to always be checking on each other to make sure everybody's okay. Folks, we're on with Gary Sinise. Um, you've known as, as an actor and as an advocate for veterans' issues and founder of the Gary Sinise Foundation. Gary Sinise, what is uh, or what are some of the areas that the Gary Sinise Foundation um, does help? And, you know, some of the things that you've been doing, I know you've been doing this for a long time, and you're involved in a lot of initiatives outside of your foundation. Uh, that's obviously why you've been honored as Grand Marshal of the National Memorial Day Parade this year. Uh, but tell us, uh, you know, some of the, the work that you've, you're doing now. Oh, gosh. At, at the Gary Sinise Foundation, we, we have so many different services that we provide. And, you know, <clears throat> I'll tell you why we're so broad in our mission is because prior to starting my foundation, I was – just pitching in wherever I could to help multiple nonprofits that are in the military and first responder support space. And they were doing a variety of things and I saw a variety of needs out there. And then when I started my foundation, uh, I wanted to just continue doing that, but within, you know, uh, one single organization. Well, I still support, other nonprofits and help them raise awareness and, and funding and whatnot. Uh, I wanted to kind of bring everything under one umbrella and uh, having been involved with so many nonprofits in different spaces, 
I just said, well, we're going to do a lot of different things at the Gary Sinise Foundation. We have mental wellness programs. We support other organizations that are really working hard uh, to provide uh, mental health services. We have Gold Star uh, family support. Uh, We build homes for our wounded service members. Uh, I've continued to entertain troops on military bases all over the country. And in the last 19, 20 years or so, I have played just hundreds and hundreds of concerts to raise spirits and boost morale. And, you know, quite often we'll go to a base uh, right here in the States and you've got, you know, uh, a, a huge number of service members that are deployed from those bases, but their families are still there on the bases enduring these long deployments and we roll in and we lift the spirits of the children and and the spouses and try to do what we can to make sure that they know they're appreciated so we uh, we want all our service members to know that that they're not forgotten no matter if they're on the front page or not uh they're always in our hearts and we and we want to take care of them i have a lot of vietnam veterans uh friends and family members I go back to the Vietnam days uh, and remember all too well what it was like when they didn't get the services and support that they needed and how difficult it was for them to go off to war and then come home and feel abandoned by the nation. And we don't want that to ever happen again. That's why my foundation kind of grew out of a lot of different things. And uh, I'm, I'm, we're almost uh, at the end of our 12th year. We're going into our 13th year. Wow. Well, let me just remind everybody who we're on with. We're on with uh, Gary Sinise. You guys know Gary Sinise. He's all over the place uh, in Hollywood and television. Apollo 13, The Green Mile, CBS's CSI New York, and, of course, Lieutenant Dan. And uh, Gary Sinise is with us. Where uh, He's telling us uh, about the work of the foundation and the importance of mental health and services with the military veterans community. Uh, but he's also been um, selected as honorary grand marshal for the national memorial day parade in washington dc this year and with that comes a concert so we're going to learn about the concert straight ahead i want him to fill you in on that stuff plus i really want to get uh, an idea from him on what it was like playing lieutenant dan and how that's really changed his career in many ways where he's an advocate and an actor at the same time i think that's a fascinating story in and of itself don't go anywhere straight ahead we're coming back with Actor and advocate Gary Sinise. Don't go anywhere. Plus your calls, 833-4-VALDES, 833-482-5337. Don't move a muscle. We'll be right back. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. America, welcome back. 
Uh, we're on with Gary Sinise, uh, the actor and advocate for veterans' issues. And Gary Sinise, in addition to being named the Grand Marshal, uh, the Honorary Grand Marshal of this year's Memorial Day Parade, and and it's going to be a big one. Um, I see a lot of uh, 5,000 people uh, marching. But you're also um, involved in a concert that's going to be taking place on May 26th. Tell us all about it. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks, Rich. Um, we, uh, my foundation is, uh, we're, we're doing so much all over the country. We, but uh, this is the 50th anniversary year of the end of combat operations in Vietnam and the return of the POWs that happened uh, in February and March of 1973. So this is the 50th anniversary. There's uh, commemorative um, events going on this coming weekend. But uh, as I'm coming to uh, Washington, D.C. for the National Memorial Day Parade and the National Memorial Day concert at the Capitol, I wanted to come in a few days early to do a special Vietnam uh, welcome home salute to service for our Vietnam veterans. So my foundation has uh, gotten uh, Constitution Hall, and uh, on May 26th, doors open at 5 p.m. at Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., and we want as many Vietnam veterans to come to that uh, concert. It's a salute and celebration of them. Again, like I said, I have Vietnam veterans in my own family. I played a Vietnam veteran at Forrest Gump. I have great relationships with many Vietnam veterans. I've been involved with the Disabled American Veterans Organization for many, many years. Uh, and so many of their members are Vietnam veterans. Um, we want uh, we want to salute them, and that's what this May 26 concert is all about. You can go to GarySiniseFoundation.org, and right there on the homepage. And I'm talking to our Vietnam veterans out there. If you're going to be in the D.C. area, please come to the concert. Go to GarySiniseFoundation.org, and look us up there. You'll see right there on the homepage, "Welcome Home Celebration for Vietnam Veterans." Click on that, and it'll tell you how to get seats and all of that. Um, and then right after that, there's a candlelight vigil at the at the wall, um, the the Vietnam Memorial there. Yeah. So people will be leaving the concert and heading over to the wall right after that. Now, Gary Sinise, uh, you mentioned right now uh, playing uh, Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, and this 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 role that that you know changed your life in many ways, but. Tell us how it actually happened, uh, because I, I find it fascinating, right? You, you've had this great career as an actor, a working actor, and and you'd think that's interesting enough, right? <laughs> There's a lot that goes on when you get to play these different roles, uh, but yet you, you have this one role that really changes you. Walk us through it. Well, it, it, you know, I hadn't done that many movies, Rich, um, uh, up until that point. I'd done a, a Mice and Men was a movie that, I did with John Malkovich. I produced it and directed it and was in it. Uh, did a couple other movies, but not that many. And uh, in 1993, I had the opportunity to audition for Forrest Gump. And like I said, uh, you know, with Vietnam veterans and my families and 
having gotten involved with supporting Vietnam veterans groups in the Chicago area back in the 80s, uh, when the opportunity came along to audition, I very much wanted to do it. And I was lucky to get the part. And it was a, you know, obviously it was career changer because I hadn't done that many movies before. Uh, And it was a, you know, big, big film that year. We won the Oscar and it was, you know, the, I think one of the one, if if not the biggest film of the year. So when you're when you kind of come out of nowhere and you're in the biggest film of the year and you have a good part, uh, it can change the career. And after that, I uh, I did get offered additional roles and I did Apollo 13 after that and did Ransom after that and with Mel Gibson and got to play Harry Truman and uh, just did a lot of good things after Forrest Gump. So it was a career-changing role, but it was also a role that brought me to the Disabled American Veterans Organization back in 1994, and I started supporting them uh, after they invited me to their national convention that year, and they gave me an award for playing a disabled veteran. And I've been involved with them now for nearly 30 years uh, supporting them. So I, I, I really credit you know, getting involved with the DAV with, you know, the origins of my work with our wounded and how that evolved Mm -hmm. over the years to a full-time mission. And what, uh, I guess, how do you see the role of, um, you know, uh, your outlook on things, whether that's culturally, politically, a conservative view, uh, what type of role has that had in in the way you've chosen to guide your career? Because I know being a conservative, being a patriotic, uh, you don't see every actor out there doing this type of work. And I feel like in Hollywood, it, it could be more of a hindrance than a benefit. You know, I'm, I made my first trip to Iraq to support the troops and to visit them in uh, 20 years ago, it's, it'll be 20 years in June since my first trip to Iraq. And that was, that was, that was galvanizing. I mean, really it, uh, when I went over there and, and this was uh, about two months after the initial invasion. And I remember when the statue of Saddam Hussein was kind of pulled down in the, in the square in Baghdad and, that was in April of 2003, and I, I was in Iraq two months later and visiting our troops. And then I went back again six months later uh, in November. And in between there, I went to Italy to visit our troops, and I went to Germany to visit our troops, and I went to Walter Reed, and I, I went to Sports Stewart in San Diego. And I was, I was just all over the place. I just wanted to be a part of supporting the men and women who were kind of reacting uh, to what had happened on September 11th, in a way. And uh, that was that was galvanizing again, and it just made me want to do more of it. And um, I became, you know, very, very active in supporting our troops and supporting nonprofits that were supporting our troops and I started a program called Operation Iraqi Children, where we were sending school supplies, hundreds of thousands of school supply kits over a nine-year period 
to our troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, all over the world, so that they could take those supplies out and give them to the children and the villages that they were, you know, passing through. And it was a good hearts and minds uh, effort, I thought, uh, you know, much like our GIs walking through bombed out Germany, uh, handing out chocolate and pencils to the kids. We were we were providing our troops with school supplies so that they could extend their hand of friendship. And all those efforts just led to a, a broader effort. And, you know, I got I got pretty well known for for being a guy who, you know, goes out there and, and, and supports the men and women who are defending us. And all of that manifested itself into the creation of my own foundation. And, you know, I, I think, uh, I think I, I, I've tried to do my best there and let the chips fall. Good for you for putting the mission first. I know a lot of people uh, out of Hollywood, they, they take a, an approach where, you know, it's pro America, conservative, whatever you, what have you. And the next thing you know, they, they feel like they're getting blacklisted and uh, it takes a lot of courage so I appreciate what you're doing for for all of our veterans, men and women out there. Gary Sinise, let everybody know again where they can get the tickets for the concert and support the great work you're doing. Yes, if you're if you're going to uh, D.C. Uh, for Memorial Week on May 26th at Constitution Hall, uh, we're going to have a Lieutenant Dan Band concert, and uh, we're also going to have Medal of Honor recipient Sammy Davis who will be speaking to the crowd. Joe Montaigne will be our master of ceremonies that night. Uh, one of the POWs, Lee Ellis, will be speaking. Uh, Steve Amerson will be singing. And then my Lieutenant Dan Band will be rocking out everybody. You can go to GarySiniseFoundation.org, and right there on the homepage you'll see the celebration for Vietnam veterans on May 26th. Just click on that, and it'll show you how to how to get seats. It's a free concert. So, uh, we hope to fill it up and we hope a lot of people come and, uh, again, all free, uh, supported by the Gary Sinise foundation. And, uh, of course our generous donors who donate to the Gary Sinise foundation. Well, it sounds like a great time celebrating America and America's veterans, America's fallen and honoring that legacy. Uh, check it out, folks. GarySiniseFoundation.org. GarySiniseFoundation.org is the website. Gary Sinise, I want to thank you for what you're doing. Godspeed to you. And thanks for being here and staying up late with us. Thanks so much for having me, Rich. You bet. Take care. And we'll do it again soon. Folks, straight ahead, we're going to continue our discussion and analysis on all of the breaking news related to the shooting in Texas over the weekend. There's new information out. Is it real? Is it fake? We're going to get to the bottom of it right here. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Uh, we're taking your calls on this topic and everything else we're discussing. 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. And what I wanted to um, uh, circle back to was uh, some breaking news 
on the shooter, right? We have uh, some breaking news on the shooter. Again, we know the shooter is a former military person uh, that was not successful in getting through the infantry school in the Army and now has killed, uh, I'm seeing reports for eight people or nine people, as young as three years old. And, and that, you know, they're saying some of the people that he shot were of color. He himself is of color. It's fascinating that this is where we are. And again, these details um, only matter when that's part of the issue. And I think that's uh, what the uh, FBI is trying to make the issue, trying to say that this guy um, was motivated by white supremacy and that he was, in fact, uh, um, part of a group. SS lightning bolts and the swastika over his heart. Now, TMZ is reporting that these, uh, this image, there's an image uh, with on his bicep, it says Texas, and then he's got these lightning bolts and the swastika, but they don't show his face. I don't know if that's him or not. I don't know if it's real or not. And, and I think that's where people are skeptical because, you know, it's not like the FBI has the most stellar reputation. I wish they did. I'd love to support them. Uh, I've got family in federal law enforcement, uh, but lamentably we've, we've seen things be um, contorted into things they're not, right? So um, we'll keep an eye on this, but this is what they're accusing him of now, of of having these tattoos, and uh, conveniently the picture that they're displaying of all places on TMZ is uh, without, without the guy's face. Uh, there's also uh, social media that allegedly belongs to the guy that has a picture of some body armor. And the body armor has the Punisher skull, the Punisher skull over a Texas flag, and the Punisher's uh, skull next to a another patch on the, on the uh, bulletproof vest that says RWDS, which they're indicating on TMZ to mean a right-wing death squad. Now, I, I, can, uh, I can only imagine um, that, you know, people of all, of all walks of life fall susceptible to different things, whether it's, uh, you know, falling into gang life like Bloods or the Crips or MS-13 or any of those gangs or, or a gang like this one, if, if that's in fact the case. I just, it seems very atypical uh, to have, you know, uh, a guy with a man bun or a, you know, ponytail um, named Mauricio Garcia and to be accepted into a group of guys that would have lightning bolts. And, uh, you know, so I guess it makes me wonder, has the white supremacists or the the neo-Nazis, have they now become woke? Are they also employing... Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, tactics in their recruitment? Are they saying, you know what, in our, in our mission for the Aryan nation and to promote white supremacy, perhaps we need to diversify our look a little bit and bring in, you know, some Latino flavor. Maybe we, oh, excuse me, Latinx flavor. <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. And I don't mean to make light of, you know, the, the shooting. I'm making light of, of this, this bizarre uh story here that this guy is the brown face of white supremacy. It sounds contrived to me. And again, I got nothing to gain or lose by, uh, by being skeptical on a story like this, but I've been around long enough to know that 
every now and again you see stories like this and in a few months it turns out, oh, this was not reported right or whatever. And I don't know if it is or isn't. But I do know I had questions surrounding the shooting that occurred in Kenosha, Wisconsin. When the media told me that Kyle Rittenhouse had, you know, taken a rifle over state lines that was illegal to possess and did so with the purpose of being a vigilante in Kenosha when he was in Ohio or whatever and whatnot, and then through an entire trial and a jury of his peers, uh, one fact after another came to light that proved him innocent and proved that the guilty party was the media for lying to America turning this kid into some vigilante killer when it turned out his parents were divorced and his dad lived in Kenosha and that he was involved in the community and cleaning graffiti in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and was involved with like safety patrol groups and whatnot, and that he did have a, a rifle that he was legally allowed to have, use, and possess, and whatever, and whatnot, and, and was cleared of any crimes and ended up suing CNN and, and the rest of the media for how they've maligned him and one, or, you know, so th- these are is in the process of winning or whatnot or had a settlement. So uh, I, I look at that and I say that's just one of the most, um, not most egregious, but one of the more um, recent examples. Uh, you also had Nick Sandman, right, where that kid, they had the video of him and it, it was made to look like by starting and stopping the tape at a certain point, like he was somehow harassing a Native American when it turned out to be the other way around. And the media trashed this kid who was on a school trip with his Christian school uh, from Covington, Kentucky. You know, and again, same thing, totally turning the story around to make it look like this kid was the evil white supremacist getting in the face of the Native American. And again, I'm not pro-white or pro-Native American. I'm just saying the media lied, and this kid had a huge payday when he sued you know, the media. And the media doesn't always get it right. And I know there's people listening right now that are saying, hey, Valdez, you're part of the media. Yeah. But I'm a big enough boy to say sometimes we get things wrong, and that's why I don't jump on the first story I see. Anyway, more to come straight ahead. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Go to our buddy Paul in Zanesville, Ohio, W-H-I-Z. Paul, go right ahead. Uh, yes, Rich. I'm, I'm just a little incensed. Uh, uh, you know, just, I'm upset about this white supremacy stuff. I'm a white guy. You should take that guy, hang him in a public square in Washington, D.C., I don't care what color you are, and say this is what's going to happen to you when you do this to our children and our people in the United States, Rich. I'm very upset. Yep. I'm tired of being called a uh, white supremacist you know, uh, a Nazi or whatever. I am nothing like that. I have biracial, uh, my brother-in-law's the biggest, blackest dude in the city of Zanesville. I am (laughs) sick of it. You know, that guy was a nut, you know, and we have to do something about this mental health issue. And you and I talked about the red flag issues. Well, uh, maybe it's not that so much, Rich. That's where a little disagreement is. But let's do something about mental health and stop this kind of stuff. It's not white supremacy. You're right. Thank you, Paul. It's all about mental health, in my opinion. Um, they're trying to make it about white supremacy being the biggest thing hurting us in America. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but we're going to continue our discussion on the media. Don't go anywhere.
live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and our telephone number, if you want to join the conversation here, 833-482-5337-833, the number four, my last name, Valdez. And uh, make sure you chime in at Rich Valdez on all of the social media if you have a comment there or you could give us a call. I want to uh, quickly go over a couple of headlines here because obviously there's it's been a very, um, very busy news day with lots of information coming out. There's... Um, there's a big discussion over something that's near and dear to my heart. Airlines might soon be on the hook for delayed and canceled flights. Yeah, good. They should be. Now, listen, I realize business has, you know, nuance. However, you can't just uh, sell a ticket for one price and then go, yeah, guess what? We decided to cancel it. You can take a refund or a credit for from now till, you know, the next year or so and just leave people stranded in airports. You just can't do that. It's not cool. And uh, that almost happened to me recently, so I, I understand. Uh, thankfully, I was able to make some moves and, you know, get on the next plane the next day, not even like the, later in that day. But that's another story for a different day, or at least for a different segment. We also have uh, uh, some other stories about uh, Biden's accuser, Tara Reid, posting cryptic messages about death ahead of her potential congressional testimony. Uh, but that's being largely ignored by the media for lots of coverage about E. Jean Carroll, which we'll talk about at the top of the next hour. And uh, with respect to the media, we've got the White House banning the New York Post from a Biden event, just as there's a lot of talk about Hunter Biden potentially being indicted. So uh, we're going to keep you up to speed on that story uh, as well. But the White House press office is uh, barring the New York Post from attending President Biden's only daytime public event um, as federal prosecutors near a decision on the criminal charges uh, against his son, Hunter Biden, for tax fraud and some other crimes related to lying on an application for a handgun. So uh, I just think that's it's just, who does that, right? I mean, this is like the equivalent of burning books when the White House bans uh, a particular outlet. But anyway, when it comes to the media... I just I mentioned it before and I'll mention it again. There's just so little that I expect from them because lamentably it's it's a I don't want to say they're a dying breed, but good journalists, good columnists, good, you know, um, real fact checkers who uh, used to be called journalists. (laughs) They're they're few and far between. And we try to bring the best ones we can on this program because you deserve to hear the best. And uh, Cal Thomas has been a columnist forever And uh, he's a pro 50 years. He's been in journalism in America and he takes us on a road trip uh, with his new book. And I want to get to the bottom of it with him. Cal Thomas, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rich. Thank you for that introduction. Nice to be on with you. Oh, likewise, sir. Thank you. And, you know, your new book, uh, Watchmen in the Night, is really what I believe journalism should be at, at, you know, night, day, whenever, right? I think journalism as a whole, at least as our constitutions put it, was 
to be the the watchdog for the American people. And it seems like that's no longer the case. They kind of write the story literally and and the narrative to go along with it. Cal Thomas. Yes, that's exactly right, Rich. And it's certainly not the journalism I started out with at NBC News in Washington as a copy boy in the 1960s. These were uh, great journalists who had come over from uh, newspapers or wire services. They wrote their own stuff. They covered hearings. Yes, probably most of them were Democrats, but they were fair in their coverage. I remember David Brinkley, who was one of the uh, great journalists of the time, said it's impossible to be objective, so we must try to be fair. But fairness has gone out the window. As you suggested, Mm -hmm. it's all opinion now. You know, the newspapers have opinion sections, but the front page has become opinion. And and the Mm -hmm. way they uh, don't cover certain stories, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the New York Post being banned. The New York Post was banned during the last election cycle for reporting the truth on the Hunter Biden laptop and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the election, of course, uh, they said, whoops, oh, well, you know, that was the, that's history and all that. So most of journalism today has become advocacy. And what I try to do in my uh, new book, uh, Watchmen of the Night, is to look back over my uh, almost 40 years as a syndicated columnist and point out some of the things that have violated what used to be uh, standards in this company, country. Now all standards are being uh, uh, rejected, moral standards, economic standards. Look at the debt, $31 trillion and counting. Biden's got this meeting tomorrow with McCarthy and and a bunch of others. But that's not going to go anywhere because the left has played uh, games with the debt and the debt ceiling for years. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's all about moving the goalposts. And I think what, what's um, frustrating to me, when it comes to the media, right? You look at a situation like this and you've got, they're, they're, I think they're trying to have a serious negotiation. At least I think McCarthy is. He's trying to tie it to lower spending, trying to you know do the right thing here. And, and the other side seems to just say, no, we just want to spend more so that we could placate more people and do what we have to do with what, whatever it takes kind of attitude. And, and then they have the cover of the media. The media will go out there and I'll repeat the talking points of your, your, the um, America must maintain the full faith and credit of America. Yeah. Don't allow America to default and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, where is the one voice that says that's not like that? Well, one of the benefits of uh, being in this business for a long time is you get to see a lot of these things repeated. Uh, this mm-hmm. this business about uh, the, the public is going to do away with your Social Security. This has been going on since the Fran- Franklin Roosevelt administration. The Democrats have played this game. It's like Lucy in the football. This time, Charlie Brown, I'm really going to hold it. This time, uh, <laughs> things are going to be different. Uh, it, it, the, the debt is uh, unsustainable. No nation has ever been able to sustain itself with this kind of debt. And yet, uh, as you say, the spending continues. You know, Ronald Reagan had one of the great lines on this. Uh, the, uh, the only proof of eternal in Washington is a government program. It's true. It's easier to kill a vampire. And the analogy is good because both suck the lifeblood out of their host. 100% true. Oh, my gosh. Folks, we're on with uh, Cal Thomas, a syndicated columnist and the author of the new book, A Watchman in the Night. And uh, he's taking us on on a trip, a little bit of a road trip over his 50 years in journalism, 40 years in syndication, talking about American life as a watchman on culture and politics and looking to uh, see how things pan out 
uh, over from one decade to the next. And uh, so far, it's been an enlightening discussion. Cal Thomas, I want you to stick with us. When we come back, we're going to continue your discussion on the book and the state of affairs and of the media in our country. And if you have a question, comment, concern uh, with our guest or with the program, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Why do you think your polling is where it is? Well, I don't think people, by the way, every major one who won re-election, their polling numbers were mine are now. Put polling aside no, then, right? Sure. Sentiment in this but, country, despite no, all these wins, is not very good. I think all they've heard is negative news for three years. Everything is negative. I'm not being critical of the press, but you turn on the television, the only way you're going to get a hit is if there's something negative. You, you know, you don't, anyway. Okay, you know, you know. That's uh, Joe Biden, as I like to call him, Joe El Baboso Biden. And he says that, look, the reason his poll numbers are in the tank, which they've been, I don't know, forever, uh, is because the media is not fair to him. It's negative, negative, negative. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's entirely true, <laughs> but, but our guest Cal Thomas is going to give us his two cents on that. He's the author of A Watchman in the Night. Cal Thomas, what say you? Well, Rich, I think this is just a daily reminder that we have a president who is in mental decline. Uh, it's uh, it's just not true that the media have been negative, negative, negative. Uh, they've been positive, positive, positive. They helped get elected. They were anti-Trump from the beginning. And uh, that's just a fact. It's not debatable. I mean, the media has been on the side of the Democrats because, as all the polls have shown over the years, the overwhelming number of so-called journalists and media types from Hollywood to Washington are uh, liberal Democrats. They say it openly. They're not uh, they're not embarrassed about it. And their coverage reflects that, as you as you indicated in the uh, previous segment. They begin with a narrative, and then they look for things that help uh, uh, support that narrative. And they ignore a lot of stories. Uh, again, the Hunter Biden laptop was ignored and suppressed. And they don't talk about the debt. They don't talk about uh, our crumbling foreign policy. They don't talk about our lack of respect around the world. Even Xi Jinping, the president of China, has said he views America as in decline. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. And who's been presiding over the government for the last almost four years? It's been the Democrats and their willing accomplices in the media. So uh, you, you listen to Biden's interview, and they're inarticulate. They make no sense at all. The only person in Washington who is less articulate than Biden is his vice president. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, I, I people say, oh, that's that's what keeps us, you know, protecting him is because we don't want her. And I think, man, what what a great opportunity it would be for her to run for president against anybody. Right. I mean, yeah. This would be such a robust uh, discussion. Well, I don't you know, I, I think something's going to happen between now and early next year. I just don't see the Democrats uh uh, supporting Biden for another term. He'd be 82. If he were reelected, he'd be 86. 
at the end of a second term. The new Washington Post ABC poll is astonishing. Uh, most people now, even most Democrats, a majority of Democrats don't want him to run. And on the Republican side, it's the same thing. They're not looking for a rematch between Trump and Biden. They're looking for a new generation. Uh, you know, Jack Kennedy said in his inaugural speech in 1961, the torch has been passed to a new generation. I think that's what a lot of people are looking for. They're not looking for 70 and 80 year olds to be president. We got a lot of younger people out there in their 40s and 50s who are vigorous and who are uh, intellectually capable and very articulate. And I think we need to turn the page on all that stuff and begin all over again. Could be. I mean, uh, I'm of the opinion that uh, the the idea that everybody's too old is 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 in and of itself a little bit of one of those ideas that the media contrives. Uh, I think there's there's plenty. Look at you, and I I don't know your age, but I know you've got 50 years of experience in observing American politics, (laughs) right? But I I look at me and I, you know, I've been observing politics for 20 years, but most of my time I was in government service or private industry. And I've been in radio for the last five years. And, uh, there's a lot for me to learn about, uh, radio and, and, and the media that I could turn to a guy like you and ask. And I think there's a lot of value in your, well, thank you, sir. (laughs) And I I think I look at you and I say, you know, you've seen this from a different perspective than me. And uh, and that's really uh, the setup. It's a perfect setup for the next question, which is as we look at so much of this and you alluded to it in the first segment where there's there's so much of uh, of the playbook that gets repeated. And while there's nuance here, like Biden's age, his mental decline and whatnot, a lot of it's standard. Right. And, And and it's just we're seeing more of it, I think, because of social media, perhaps. And also because I think Biden's been extraordinarily weak as a leader. But what are some of the reoccurring themes, I guess, you've seen over your 50 years and, and part of what you outline in your book, A Watchman in the Night? Well, one of the great cliches, of course, is that I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that people turn to government too, in too many cases now, Rich, as a first resource instead of a last resort. Uh, the 30th president, Calvin Coolidge, said you don't build up a weak by tearing down the strong. Those kinds of ideas have almost evaporated for our culture now. It's kind of a perversion of the 23rd Psalm. Uh, the, the government is my keeper, I shall not want. Uh, if you look at the ads during the last uh, Medicare open season, I live in Florida now, no state taxes, thank you. Uh, God bless and, you. Yes, that's right. And, and, and all of the ads had four common words. Free, entitled, benefit, and deserve. Now, just think about that. Free, entitlement, benefit, and deserve. What you have now from the left and have had for some time is envy of the successful. You may remember uh, Biden recently proposed uh, he wanted to subsidize people with bad credit so they could get mortgages by increasing Mm -hmm. the mortgage rate of people with good credit I mean, that's just absolutely crazy. How did that mm-hmm. happen? So what you penalize, you get less of, and what you subsidize, you get more of. And the government is about, uh, the, at least under the Democrats, is about addicting more people to government because that furthers the politicians' careers. It's as simple as that. It's been going on for decades. But we, the people, are at fault for electing these people. Look at our, look at our major cities. They're going to pot. Chicago, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, crime, but people keep electing the left-wing Democrat mayors and expect different outcomes. That's the definition of insanity. 
hundred percent. And I feel like you know earlier we talked about the you brought up this uh, ABC poll and or WAPO poll, and it's uh, fascinating to me that we're finally at a place where the Democrats uh, and what they promoted. I think they're saying, all right, it was cool when we didn't have it, but now we have it, and uh, it's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad, and we can't afford to do more of it, so we've got to do something else. And I don't know if they're priming the pump for a Gavin Newsom or for, you know, people keep talking about Obama, but I can't see Obama taking a pay cut, uh, any of the Obamas, uh, Michelle or Barack, to, to get back into public life. What do you think? Well, I, I think Obama's really running this the the game behind the scenes. I mean, look at the people who are holdovers. Uh, Susan Rice just left, but uh, she was a major factor in the Biden administration. Sure. You know, it reminds me of the, the Middle Ages where they had these 12-year-old kings and the real power was behind the throne. Biden doesn't know what's going on day to day. He has these cheat sheets always that he's looking at. He didn't remember that he was in Ireland just a few weeks ago when he was asked by a child and had to be reminded. His wife, Jill, pulls him off the page sometimes uh, during an interview with uh, MSNBC just a, a day or two ago. Uh, a staff member interrupted the interview because the staff member didn't like the question and didn't want him to enter it, uh, to answer it. I've never seen that in all my time in journalism. I've never seen a White House staff member interrupt an interview. That's what we have as president right now. The guy just doesn't have it. And, you, you know, you talk about age. People uh, age differently. And and uh, I'm uh, Biden and I are about the same age. He's about a month older than I am. But I hope I'm more articulate than he is and I'm demonstrating that on this program tonight. I'd vote for you in a heartbeat. And that was the point I was making earlier, right? It's not about age. You bring a lot to the table when you're experienced. Yeah, it's, right. it's him. He's the problem. <laughs> he's he's, he's the a problem. really big yep. problem. Well, you All know, right. the media well, sold him as a uniter, but he hasn't united anything. Uh, he's done nothing but division. And I think his first campaign ad, I remember it like yesterday with the guys with the torches, the, 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 the whole, um, you know, good people on both sides uh, lie that yeah. they were promoting. And he just continued the division from there. Cal Thomas, let everybody know how they could find your column and keep up with the wonderful work that you're doing and how they can get a copy of your new book. Well, it's very kind, Rich. Thank you. Well, you can go to your local newspaper if they carry me. Unfortunately, more newspapers are shutting down than ever. Uh, but uh, all my stuff is on my website, calthomas.com. And, uh, you know, you can get the book of the usual places, sometimes even in bookstores. But uh, Amazon, <laughs> Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, the, the usual places. I appreciate the plug. Thanks. You bet. Newspapers and bookstores, what are those? Guys, check it out, calthomas.com. Go to your, wherever you go and get it. Get two copies, one for you, one for a friend. Cal Thomas, Godspeed to you, and thanks for staying up late. Delighted, Rich. You bet. Thanks again. All right, folks, more to come straight ahead. We're going to talk with Katie Talento and uh, find out what's going on about the war on babies. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. And uh, according to the feds, there are some hospitals that are denying emergency uh, abortions. And uh, this is uh, obviously <clears throat> problematic. 
Uh, first of its kind, federal investigation has found two hospitals put pregnant women's lives in jeopardy and violated federal law by refusing to provide emergency abortions uh, during premature labor. This is a crazy, crazy story. Uh, I want to get to the bottom of that with our guest, Katie Talento. She's executive director of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. Katie Talento, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I uh, there, there's a lot going on with this war on babies, and uh, I know that you um, you were uh, instrumental with um, the uh, domestic policy uh, in the last administration and, and been a leader in the forefront of this. Uh, so uh, tell us uh, what's going on. Take us right from the beginning. Sure, Rich. Well, I mean, I think that what we're seeing is um, too many policies are coming out of the Biden administration that have just declared an absolute war on babies, whether they're already born babies with the FDA trying to poison them with heavy metals and baby food and not doing anything about the formula shortage, or you have this just outright attack on the dignity of human life, you know, where they're, they're suggesting that somehow abortion is medical treatment, which it never is. You never have to just perform an abortion in order to save a mother's life. Um, we, we can support treating the mother. We can support even chemotherapy or a hysterectomy, whatever is necessary to save the mother's life. But you don't, you don't just say that the abortion alone is the medical care. That's just not the case medically or scientifically. Let's talk about that because, you know, that's one of those things where I think there are a number of issues, politically speaking, where people will, will position something where there, there's only one outcome that is safe for people. For example, the uh, the debate over health of mother versus life of mother. You know, when they have these these the, the wording and they say, you know, we should support scenarios where the mother's uh, health is is at risk, and then say, say, no, no, it's the mother's life. And you're saying that that that's you know never or rarely the case. And I think this is where people who could be as pro life as they want to be, uh, but they're they're. I think they feel like they're backed into a corner and they want to say, look, I don't want people to die uh, in, in any instance. You know, let, let this be the choice they make with their doctor and whatever when they have a situation like that. So what would a situation look like where you'd have to abort a baby in order to save a mother? So you never have to abort a baby to save a mother. Sometimes you have to treat the mother and that treatment may result as a secondary effect in the baby dying. For instance, if you have an ectopic pregnancy and you need to remove the baby's lodged in the mother's fallopian tube where it shouldn't be, and you have to remove that fallopian tube in order to save the life of the mother, of course, you're also removing the baby, but you're not going in, slicing up the baby into parts, vacuuming out the baby's parts like an abortion, right? You're not just Mm -hmm. solely going in there to kill the baby as some sort of life-saving treatment for the mother. No, you, you treat the mother with, with however you need to treat the mother, but the abortion is never the treatment. But sometimes the baby dies, unfortunately. But that's not the same thing as intentionally targeting the baby for death. Lots of times if a mother is, um, for instance, experiencing gestational diabetes or some sort of serious complication, and then you deliver the baby, even if it's too early, honestly. Um, but you have to do it to save the mother's life. You deliver the baby, and, and maybe the baby will live. Maybe the baby can get critical care and live, but maybe not. And, and even if the baby dies, at least you, you tried everything 
to keep both right. mom and baby alive. You didn't go in and target the baby for death. You never have to do that. You never have to just merely abort the baby. And that is a solution for mom. This is a, a fascinating topic to me because uh, I agree with you 100% on this. And, and I feel like these become, you know, for years I've always, wherever I go, they're like, oh, you talk about politics. But, but for me, it's more culture. It's more philosophy. And, and to me, that's the, the issue we're talking about now is physicians that believe in their Hippocratic oath to do no harm means deliver the baby and give the baby a fighting chance. Or do no harm means put the baby out of its misery because this is going to have no life. It's going to have a horrible quality of life. And the best thing we can do is abort it. And I think this becomes a question of how each physician individually views life. Am I right or wrong? It really is true. You know, I, I recently encountered a story of a, of a mother who was told that her baby, she was pregnant and her baby was, um, had severe lethal deformities and the baby was sort of um, curved in a U shape. Um, it was just very deformed. Its organs, uh, including the heart, were on the outside of the baby's body. And um, and this woman was in a sort of liberal academic medical center um, that told her that there was no hope except to abort the baby and that she could, if she wanted to, um, try to induce labor and deliver the baby. But there was no point in doing that because the baby was going to die and, you know, it might not come out right. and They'd have to do a C-section anyway. And so it would be better to abort the baby. And this mom, you know, she didn't know any better. And she had all these white coats telling her that this was the only way. But if she'd had the chance to talk to a pro-life OBGYN, she would have gotten a second opinion. And, and she would have heard about other families who, who had experienced a similar situation, including other families who'd, who'd experienced this exact same diagnosis for their baby. And yes, the baby did die, but they had a chance to deliver the baby naturally and, and hold their baby and comfort their baby in, in her last hour on earth. And it, it was horrible and devastating, but it was also poignant and beautiful. And in a way that I think when you just, you know, sub subject the baby to some sort of lethal injection and then dice the baby up in the mom's womb and suck the baby out with a vacuum. Like that's, that's what's happening when, when we're aborting these later term babies, mm -hmm. it's not necessary. Even in these tragic cases, it's not necessary to take that approach. Katie Talento, I know that you, your background in epidemiology and you're, you're an expert on this stuff. Uh, and I'm not. So I'll, I'll ask you this. It's my understanding that when this process occurs and they do that slicing action in the back of the babies, you know, where the spine is, uh, the brainstem and, and they vacuum out individual parts and whatnot, that these parts are then sold for quote unquote research. Is this accurate? So yeah, it can be, um, typically the fetal tissue trafficking industry um, likes to have the organs very, very fresh, um, which is disgusting and horrible. Um, but they, they don't want to crush the organs too much. So they try mm. to deliver the baby as fully intact as they can, um, trying to kill the baby at the very last minute or um, keep the heart going as long as it can because these organs aren't as useful for the ghoulish scientific research that they're engaging in when uh, the baby's been dead for a, for a little while longer by the time they get the organ harvested. So it's a disgusting, horrifying, horrendous situation um, 
And trafficking in this type of fetal tissue, um, especially if it involves changing the abortion procedure in order to better harvest the organs, that is illegal. Um, so we, we have seen some investigations um, for the Center for, I believe it's Center for Medical Progress, David DeLayden's group, has conducted oh, yeah. a number of investigations showing that the University of Pittsburgh, for example, medical center, was engaged in precisely this type of procedure. They have, they have the receipts. And um, so far, the Biden administration and, frankly, the Trump administration, after I left, was, was not engaging in any sort of investigation on this, unfortunately. Yeah, this is uh, uh, fascinating to me because what you're describing explains why there seems to be, again, I look at things politically, and when when you have a lobby and and policy that, you know, subsequently comes from this lobbying, like um, what um, former Virginia Governor Ralph Northam talked about, where, you know, we should give we should allow abortion to occur almost after the fact where you know, some people are and they suggested it in California as well, deliver the baby. It makes sense if there is a a a desire to have these intact organs that they would say, all right, they'll deliver the baby and then we'll abort it. And I think this is egregious and, you know, criminal. But um, it, it seems to be making its way into policy, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I live in Virginia and I have never been so horrified as to hear my own governor, who is a pediatrician, yeah. talk about murdering children outside the womb who, who didn't quite die fast enough inside the womb when they, when, you know, their parents tried to kill them. Um, so, you know, I will say that there were many reasons why governor Northam was not reelected and we're very grateful for that here in Virginia, but certainly that had to be one of them. It really activated the pro-life movement in Virginia. Um, but yeah, this is, this is a serious problem and, and nobody's really paying attention to it. It was sort of trendy, trendy and fashionable to talk about, um, the fetal parts trafficking industry a few years ago, but it seems to have fallen off the radar. Um, it's still very much in progress. There are a number of NIH grants that um, where where the researchers openly talk about that they will be using fetal tissue and that they're getting that fetal tissue wow. from local Planned Parenthoods and other abortion mills. All right. Well, Katie Talento, hang on right there. Executive Director of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. We're going to come right back and continue this discussion. Our phone number is 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Katie Talento. She was a top health advisor for the Trump White House Domestic Policy Council and former oversight investigator and legislative director for the United States Senate. And uh, she's the executive director of the Alliance of Health Care Sharing Ministries. Katie Talento, we left off uh, uh, on the discussion of the fetal organ trafficking industry, which you're saying is still alive and well, uh, despite getting minimal press coverage. Yeah, it's really depressing. Um, You know, I think about 
you know, the White House is not allowed to uh, interfere in DOJ investigations. And so we we were limited in our ability to be able to, you know, basically uh, hold hold the uh, DOJ's feet to the fire about this and and push too hard. And, you know, I guess we want we you know, we want that. I that's sort of the ethical rules around, you know, they 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 allegedly don't want political pressure um, on the law enforcement process. But we see how that's kind of a joke these days. Of course, the law enforcement process has been totally politicized um, in our country now. And so these these ethics rules seem so quaint that constrained us when we were in the White House. But, um, you know, we weren't able to pressure DOJ to, to focus on this um, because we didn't want to cross that line. But it's a real tragedy that um, the attorney general bar at the time just didn't didn't take on this issue sufficiently. Yeah. And, and, and certainly the Biden administration hasn't, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's when the Biden administration took over um, just a few months into the administration, they reversed most of the, the rules that the, the Trump administration had put on fetal tissue research. And and I think, you know, you have to have rules somewhere. Right. Otherwise, it, it becomes a blanket policy for kill first, ask questions later. And and, and you know, as I'm, I'm a dad. Right. I think before becoming a dad, you can be very flip on certain issues and take a flippant approach to, you know, making very life or death decisions. And you can make them in the snap of fingers. You're saying, well, if it's going to be a bad life for me, I might as well kill them up front. <laughs> Forget giving them a chance. But I think once you get to know people and you have children and you fall in love with these children, you realize, you know, I want every last second that I can get. And it's not so much about um, the quality of life. It is, I think, is, is a commitment to it, right? And and I guess the, the, this argument's made, and again, that's why I think it always comes back to philosophy. Same philosophy of, are you going to stay married just for the sake of your kids? Um, or it's better to have, you know, happy parents that are separate than, you know, unhappy parents that are together. And, and as if that was the only scenario that could exist. And I think we face that same thing in healthcare today. And I, I just wonder, does that chasm get wider or is there a way to kind of meet in the middle? Well, I think you're, you're landing on something that's really important and that I think reflects sort of the deterioration of our Western civilization, which is mm-hmm. The children don't have a lobby. They don't have a, a political voice and they don't have a vote. And increasingly, you know, that's why they, our laws and, and our culture and our norms have always prioritized children and put them first because no one else will stand for them if the, if the strong adults don't stand for the little and the weak ones who, who don't have a voice. Um, and, of course, the unborn have, have no voice at all, the, the least voice. But, um, you know, really I think we've seen – in the past few years, uh, just crossing new lines in this, in this aspect of just assaulting children and, and prioritizing the strong adults and their needs over, um, over the weak children and their needs. And we've seen that with respect to our masking policies. I remember just, I'll never forget that video that kind of went viral during the pandemic when a little boy, a toddler at daycare was resisting keeping a mask on his face. And, you know, you had like three or four daycare workers who were just forcing him and just continuing to force him and almost torture this poor boy, forcing him to, to wear a mask. It it, it was like a kidnapping video. It was just awful. And, you know, that's someone's little boy. And they had to see that video over and over again. They, they probably had a job they couldn't afford to quit. And, 
you know, they, they had no choice except to put their child into this situation. Um, and that was millions of parents facing that exact same situation. And then you had the students, especially those with learning needs and um, autism or, or um, speech development issues who were, mm-hmm. who were going to schools and, 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 you know, falling behind. We have many kids that were falling behind, not just those who were suffering with right. that kind of disability, but all children. They lost IQ points during this time. They lost, um, you know, test scores. It was really horrifying. And, and nobody was standing up for them, or at least no one who had a big enough right. um, stick, you know. And so then, of course, we see the FDA. Which, but before we go know, into the for- next topic, Katie, let's, I'm going to take a quick pause and we're going to come right back. Uh, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. Our guest, Katie Talento, we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. We continue our discussion on the war on children and babies with Katie Talento. She was a uh, top advisor to the Trump administration, um, the White House uh, Domestic Policy Council. And Katie Talento, we left off right before the break. Uh, you were sharing with us um, yet another example of the attack on children. Yeah, thanks so much, Rich. I think one of the really sort of scary things that has come out in recent weeks, but it's really a continuation of a longer story, is that the baby foods are being contaminated with heavy metals like lead and arsenic and cadmium. Um, This is a really huge problem. It seems kind of technical, and I think many of us feel, I think, (laughs) powerless in the face of sort of contamination of, of our food supply. But this is something that the FDA really could do something about, and they've been asked to do something about it for almost a, a generation. I mean, for, for decades, really, this problem has been known. And really how it happens is water gets water that's contaminated um, out in, the, in, in nature. It's contaminated with these um, chemicals, and it, it is used in the manufacturing practice, practices of mm. these giant food corporations and yeah, so it gets in it gets into the supply and and these are rice cereals usually given to babies when they're weaning onto solid food off of breast milk or formula. Oh, really? Is that um, where even, the, uh, yeah. the the metals are being found in rice cereal? Yep, in rice cereal or oat cereals, but rice is really in particular cuz it's it needs a lot of water in order to be cooked and so wow. yeah, and then the contaminated problem. water is where it comes into play. Wow, yep. Katie Talento, quickly let everybody know how they could keep up to speed with what you're doing. Yep, they can find me at, at Katie Talento with a Y, at Katie Talento on Twitter. Outstanding. God bless you. Keep up the good work, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Thanks so much, Rich. You're welcome. All right, don't go anywhere. Straight ahead, Open Phone America with me, Rich Valdez. the city that never sleeps. 
17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. This is Open Phone America, where we uh, take calls from all across the country, and you get to sound off on all the hot topics of the evening. And I want to give you the phone number, invite you to call 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ is my uh, phone number. If you want to give me a call, we also have the Legacy Line open, uh, 866-505-4626. Now, <clears throat> Lots of stuff to talk about. We've talked about a lot of things this evening. We've talked about the hero cop that sprinted towards the shooter in Texas. Of course, I'm talking about a mall shooting uh, in Texas by um, Mauricio Garcia, excuse me. And uh, and we'll get into that momentarily. Uh, we also uh, we talked about the state of the media in America uh, with Cal Thomas and uh, talking about how the media has been covering for Biden, yet Biden says, no, it's the media that makes you think I'm not doing a good job. No, sir, it's you that make us think you're not doing a good job. It's a terrible job that you're doing. And I, I you know, it's a great time to to to, to be a conservative because uh, I think, you know, wherever I get into these conversations, wherever I go, people always, you know, they, they want you to, you know, basically do your show on demand. <laughs> and I tell them, look, no, 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 call the show. But uh, I, I will tell them, I go, I mean, are, are you supporting Biden? And, you know, it puts them in a tough spot because nobody wants to support this guy. And obviously, because nobody wants that kind of lifestyle. And many of them are honest and say, you know what? I, it was better when Trump was around. And yeah, that's the truth. Uh, but we talked about that. We also talked about uh, how the um, industry um, or what our guest Katie Talento called the traffickers of fetal organs uh, this industry continues to thrive. It's still alive and well. It's an industry I didn't even know existed, to be frank with you. So um, and that was part of our discussion tonight as well. And we're going to talk about some other stuff. Uh, there's a fascinating story um, out of Utah, right? This is NBC News in Utah, Channel 4, excuse me, ABC News Channel 4 in Utah. And listen to this, abc4.com is the website. This Utah woman wrote a book about grief following her husband's death. So local authors, she was making the rounds, promoting her book because her, you know, her beloved husband had passed away. And it's now come to uh, be found that she, Corey Rishens is her name, uh, is now being charged with the murder of that husband that she wrote the book on grief for or about. And this is coming out of Camas, Utah. This Kansas woman, um, or a Camas, excuse me, Camas, Utah woman, who her name again, Corey, K-O-U-R-I, Richens, R-I-C-H-I-N-S, <clears throat> uh, wrote a children's book about coping with grief following the death of her husband. She was charged with murder today, uh, or at least Monday, you know, this final hour in New York. If you're in New York, you know that we're already in Tuesday. If you're listening on the West Coast, then we're still, uh, we're still on Monday. But Corey Richens was arrested on May 8th, Summit County, um, 
for aggravated murder and three counts of possession of drugs with intent to distribute. The murder, the alleged murder, occurred on March 3rd, 2022. Her husband, Eric Richens, died March 4th, and his obituary claimed that he uh, died unexpectedly. And they were married for nine years. He had three sons with her. The document charges uh, Corey with murder, and they were originally sealed, but now they've been unsealed. According to court records, a relative of Eric had filed for guardianship of their children, and uh, this man was found dead at the foot of his bed, according to the, the, the police's charging documents. They were celebrating her closing on a, a house for her business. She said she made him a Moscow mule in the kitchen and brought it to their bedroom where he drank it in bed. And shortly after she went to put the kids to bed, she told police she woke up around 3 a.m. and that he was cold to the touch. So this is a interesting story. She told him she left her phone plugged in in her bedroom while she was with the child. However, the phone showed it was locked and unlocked multiple times and that there was movement on the phone. There were also several messages sent and received during this time frame, but those messages were deleted. Following an autopsy, it was determined that Eric died from an overdose of fentanyl. The medical examiner said the amount of fentanyl in his system was approximately five times the lethal dosage, meaning five times what it would take to kill you. She gave him five. She was making sure this guy wasn't living. Um, and I'm sorry to hear it. According to the medical examiner, the fentanyl was ingested orally. So she made him a Moscow mule, I'm going to surmise, with fentanyl, a side of fentanyl. Would you like that on the rocks, honey? No, I'd like it with fentanyl. Unbelievable. After the autopsy, a search warrant was obtained for the residents. Several computers and Corey's phone were seized as evidence. According to the charging documents, Corey had contacted her friend several times asking if she could get a prescription uh, for pain medication for an investor who had a back injury. Hydrocodone pills were left at a house that she was selling, and Corey left the cash for them. Two weeks later, Corey came out to the same friend and asked if she could get something stronger, some of the medical some of the medicine Michael Jackson was on. Corey legit, uh, legitimately said this. They're quoting some of the Michael Jackson stuff is what she asked for. She specifically asked her friend for fentanyl. On February 11th, the friend gave Corey 15 or 20 fentanyl pills, which she reportedly paid $900 for. A few days later, on February 14th, Eric and Corey had Valentine's Day dinner at their home in Camas, Utah. The charging documents said... Then uh, shortly after dinner, Eric became very ill and told a friend he thought his wife was trying to poison him. Two weeks after this incident, on February 26th, Corey contacted her friend again and asked for another $900 worth of fentanyl pills. The friend left the pills at the same house that she was selling. Uh, she's in the house flipping business. And six days later, on March 4th, he was found dead of a fentanyl overdose. Now, she was uh, made her rounds in the media after his death. Uh, she wrote a book, Helping Kids Deal with Grief. The book focuses on how to cope with the loss of a loved one, and it was uh, released after the death of her husband. In the description of her book, it said, this book follows the story of a child who lost their father, but who is reminded that his presence still exists all around them, just like an angel watching over them. While navigating the grief of her husband's death, 
Corey said she wrote the book because she needed a distraction and a way to channel her family's feelings. Wow. I'm guessing this happens all the time, but I just find it fascinating uh, that, you know, it still happens. Just fascinating to me. Anyway, um, I guess maybe uh, I'm the naive one that doesn't think that wives kill their husbands. Maybe I got lucky just getting divorced. (laughs) Anyway, your calls and more on everything we're talking about. 8334-VALDEZ. We'll be right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Valdez, who again will do a fine job, but I know you'll enjoy listening to it. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. So one of the reasons that this uh, story is really hitting a nerve is because this man uh, appeared to be having mental health issues. This is something that you've talked a lot about. But I want to read to you. This is a response from the comptroller, Brad Lander. He tweeted this. New York City is not Gotham. We must not become a city where mentally ill human can be choked to death by a vigilante without consequence. There's also this from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic congresswoman. She said, Jordan Neely was murdered. What is your response to what they're saying here? Well, uh, both the Congress, Congre- Congresswoman and uh, the controller, uh, the controller is a citywide leader. And I don't think that's very responsible at the time where we're still investigating the situation. Let's let the DA uh, conduct his investigation with the law enforcement officials uh, to really interfere with that is not the right thing to do. And I'm going to be responsible and allow them to do their job and allow them to determine exactly what happened here. Eric Adams is saying that Congresswoman AOC all out crazy. My least favorite Congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that she is interfering along with the controller of the city of New York, uh, interfering, his word, not mine, in the investigation by D.A. Alvin Bragg into what happened here. And again, thus far, this individual, the um, a veteran Marine, has not been charged. Now, as I'm speaking to you, I'm looking at a video of protests today on subway platforms, on the streets, all over the city of New York with respect to this, um, what some are calling vigilantism, others are calling, uh, you know, Good Samaritan, that um, got into uh, an altercation with this Jordan Neely, who um, choked him out, and uh, the guy died. That simple. And and I got to tell you, um, the rear naked choke is probably my choke of choice uh, if, you know, in a closed quarter situation. Not that I do this on a regular basis. You know, I'm, I'm an armchair uh, quarterback, if you will. But that's where I would go if I had to. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's a horrific situation. <clears throat> you know, just imagine... Somebody gets stupid with your wife or your kid. You're like, hey, relax. They swing at you. You dodge the punch. You come in swiftly, put a rear naked choke on him. The guy falls asleep. Next thing you know, he never wakes up. What a nightmare scenario that is, right? Absolutely nightmarish. Um, 
I don't think anybody wants that to happen. The whole thing is horrific. And again, back to people being mentally ill, just like the shooter that we were talking about in the first hour, and we can continue that discussion as well. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts on this, about the protests that are going on and and, and all of this overall. Let's uh, go to the phones, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Andy's in Auburn, New York on WAUB. Andy, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hey. Um, well, first of all, real quick, hearing Jimbo's voice, I love that man. And it breaks my mm-hmm. heart that he's dead. You're doing a good job. Thank you. No offense, but I miss him. It should not offend me that you tell me I'm doing a good job. No, well, that I miss him. <laughs> anyway. Well, it should not offend me that um, you miss him either. Well, good. All right. Well, I'm a, I'm a Democrat. And I will continue to be a Democrat. And I want, just to, so you know where I'm coming from, I want the Democrats to control government, okay, because I'm an, an environmentalist. So two points. First of all, this woke stuff is going to kill us, the Democratic Party. It's going to destroy us. It's not a good idea to just alienate so many people by constantly this sanctimonious saturation drumbeat of if if you're non-white or GLBTQ, you are a hero just for being non-white or GLBTQ. And just the subject, if you turn on NPR, and I, I recommend anybody do this, Turn on NPR. If they're not talking about race or GLBTQ, start a stopwatch. Within five minutes, they will be talking about race or GLBTQ. They'll shoehorn it into some other topic, or they'll find some way to divert the the conversation into it. It's race, GLBTQ, all day Mm -hmm. long, every day. Anyway... Yeah, listen, Andy, I, I agree with you. And, and uh, I, I think I, I support I'm not one of those guys. The voices in the wind that you hear from, uh, you know, from time to time said the problem with America is the two party system. The problem. Listen, if, there, if that was such a problem, somebody would be fixing it. Right. I believe problems can be fixed. I, I like the two party system. I like choice. Uh, if there's third choice, go for it. Why not? I, I believe that these choices are good. And I think we should have a robust Democrat Party and a robust Republican Party. I really do. A robust Republican Party is one where there's every color of the rainbow in it and same as the Democrats. And you have contrast uh, on every on every issue. And that's fine. We can debate all the issues. Uh, I agree with you that when you start to alienate people and you're not the only one that says this is an economist who I respect greatly, who uh, one of the highlights of my career was I had a private conversation with him once for six or seven minutes, Thomas Sowell. And Dr. Thomas Sowell said uh, in so many words, he's really eloquent. But he said that if we continue to divide society and divide people and divide, divide, divide by, by you know, like you just mentioned, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, questioning, plus queer, and, and just keep g- granulating this more and more. He said, ultimately, you've made it so granular that you're back at individualism, which is where the conservative Republicans have always saying we should be. And he's saying that you are going to, if you keep up with this politics of exclusion, you're going to push right into your enemy's hands uh, or your opponent's hands. And uh, I think he's right. And I think you're saying the same thing, that 
that this wokeism is going to destroy the Democrat Party. And um, because by and large, white people make up the biggest part of that party. And it seems that they've made white people public enemy number one. And you're right. It's race and gender, race and gender, which is why critical race theory, critical gender theory or critical queer theory, I think it's called now, are the are the staples of what they do, even in the media. And if you look at the the what happened today with the shooting, <clears throat> it, it's a shooting that happened on Saturday. It's a shooting that they talked about on Sunday, but it became a national event uh, when they said that this guy was focused on race, and it was because he had hatred towards certain racial groups. And again, it may be true, it may not be, but I feel like that was the the angle that they needed, or they were looking for, or hoping for, in order to continue this. Um, racist, white supremacist uh, agenda. Um, And again, if it's real, it's real. And that's horrible. You know, I've never met a Nazi I've liked, right? (laughs) So I'm I'm not defending that in any way. But uh, Andy, I think you make a really good point. Am I still on? Of course. Okay, good. Uh, Related, the, the subway thing. Okay, now... Either party, like I said, I, I, go, I don't have internet or television, so I'm radio all day long. I go from uh, NPR to right-wing radio, back and forth, back and forth. And it drives me nuts to, when I realize they're trying to propagandize me, either side. The, the subway thing, not once on NPR did they mention that the guy who got choked to death, had a history which included punching an old lady in the head hard enough to give her brain damage and blind her permanently in one eye. They never mention that. But they do mention he's black, of course. And if he was GLBTQ, they would mention that. But they don't mention anything else. And and, uh, the right-wing radio, they don't mention that... Because I brought this up with a, another liberal friend, and mm-hmm. you know she is going to. You got like ten straight. seconds before the music comes in, so make okay. It as well, as they can. never mentioned that the guy had, could have waited two minutes to the next stop and then got a police officer. Yeah, well, and again, listen. Uh, that, that's why we're here to have those discussions and have that. Uh, Andy, thank you for the call. The music means they're kicking me out, but uh, I appreciate the call and keep listening. I think you're going to enjoy what you're hearing. Uh, We try to talk about things from every angle. 833-4-VALDEZ, your calls and more coming up next with me, Rich Valdez. debt, cut the check, or no reparations, no vote 2024. If you are running for office, do not think you are going to win your election if you don't have a concrete plan for reparations. Biden, do not seek a second term unless it's accompanied by an executive order for reparations for descendants of American chattel slavery. 
So now this is a threat to the current sitting president, the man that they put in office um, to say, if you don't make this a nationwide executive order, you don't get back in the White House. I mean, this is this is really this is over the top. All right. And that's a correspondent from Fox News, because California reparations, uh, their panel on reparations has approved payments of up to one point two million for every black resident, California's legislature could vote on the panel's recommendations uh, relatively soon. Now, the task force held a public meeting in Oakland, California on Saturday. You heard some of the audio there and voted on the final set of recommendations to be sent to their state legislators. The nine member panel called on the state to offer its black residents a formal apology in the addition to the payments, uh, saying, quote, Reparations are not only morally justifiable, but they have the potential to address long-standing racial disparities and inequalities, said uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee from California. And she said so right after the meeting. So that's where we are on reparations. Now, this panel's recommendation uh, breaks down different types of payments uh, uh, based on historical discrimination. For instance, black residents affected by redlining by banks would receive $3,300 for each year they lived in California from the 1930s through the 1970s, amounting to $148,000 total. Uh, Similarly, black residents could receive roughly $2,300 a year in compensation for over-policing and mass incarceration for each year they lived in California between 1970 and 2020. Those payments could amount to $115,000. In total, these and other payments included in the plan, uh, one black California man who's 71 years old and has lived in California his entire life, um, as an example here, could receive up to $1.2 million, according to analysis from the New York Times. So that's where we are on reparations in California. I'm interested in your thoughts on that as well as everything else we're talking about. Um, Let's see here. Uh, Let's go to Michael in Pendleton, Oregon, K-U-M-A. Michael, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Uh, Good evening, Rich. Uh, Great show again. Um, Yes, and you you always have a great guest, uh, as uh, Jim Bohannon did also. Uh, and a lot of your callers I love to listen to, including Gil from the Philippines. I think he's great. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, this is a hot-button issue, the uh, abortion issue. And I want to qualify, in the beginning, I I care about and I respect uh, all my fellow Americans. Uh, They have a right to their opinion. And uh, I know... Uh, the pro-choice people and women, you know, they say it's their choice. Um, I hear what they're saying there, but my concern, uh, you know, um, my prayer is that they'll kind of see it from this angle also, Rich, that, um, uh, you know, somebody has to stand up for that unborn life. What about them? Uh, And, you know, if you're uh, you're aborted, you're not going to Live your life, and so um, you know. So I always appreciate uh, the pro-life support of President Reagan, uh, President Trump, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that your last guest that you had the last hour. Uh, I'm concerned about that too, Rich. Uh, the forces that are working against the rights 
of children and of the unborn. Um, and I believe in, in having a peaceful, respectful dialogue with, with people on both sides of it. Uh, but I, you know, I'm proud of my local church. You know, we um, have strong support for the, uh, for the pro-life side of it. Uh, you know, I thank you for your support in the past for that, Rich. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, um, but President Reagan had a saying once. He said, well, I note that the people who are for abortion are all alive. You know, they haven't uh, gone through an abortion. I remember Reagan saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, you know, it, it, and, just uh, to chime in there, uh, Michael, what's interesting is that Reagan— <clears throat> When he said that, again, this was one of those things in the 80s that I heard that really helped form my uh, opinions in life. Just like, um, you know, I'm the scariest words in the English language. I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Or uh, one we talked about earlier, you know, um, guns don't kill people. People kill people. These very, uh, very, very smart slogans. And they're all, in my opinion, true. And and you're right. Everybody that's for abortion is still alive. They haven't been aborted. So it's uh, very convenient, right? And and this is a, a debate that won't go anywhere. It's a debate where there's plenty of back and forth. Uh, but I just, I, I believe in, in life in many times, depending on the issue, the more severe, the, the more I think we err on the side of caution, right? When it comes to issues of life. Um, my dad, my mom, you know, they're, these were interesting scenarios, you know, just to share a little bit. My, when my mom became ill, before she was ill, she had all of her mental faculties. She was fine. And she always said, look, I, you can treat me. I just don't want to be resuscitated if I die. I'm a DNR, uh, which doesn't mean do not treat because some people will take it the, the wrong way and they'll be like, oh, they're DNR. Don't do anything. That doesn't mean don't do anything. You, you treat very aggressively. You just don't um, resuscitate. Um, you can also add a do not intubate to that. And, and again, these are people's choices. And they, they should be respected. And and because in those situations, you sometimes can't come back from them, right? You could end up putting somebody in, a, in one of these persistent vegetative states where they may not even be tortured, per se. It may not be uh, uh, cruel. It just may be a perpetual state of them not really being alive, but quote unquote, being alive. And And, and it's a very interesting thing. And when my dad became ill and then had a series of, of pretty massive strokes, I remember asking several doctors, what is going on? What's the prognosis? Is my dad ever going to get better? And they would not answer. I mean, they would give me the song and dance, say, well, you know, we can't really tell, blah, 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 blah. And I would, I would be left with more questions than, than the answer I was looking for. And they finally, and I complained, and I said, look, I want a second opinion. Um, and I asked this man who was the chief of neurology at the hospital and I said, you know, what's going on here? And he said, well, let me bring you the, my, my top person, you know, under him. And this woman came in and she was a South Asian and she also gave me this very political non-answer. And I asked her, what would you do if this were your dad? And she said, well, I, I can't get into personal things. And I said, why not? This is personal for me. You're supposed to be giving me advice. And she said, well, I wouldn't be in this position. Our culture, we don't, we don't bring our elderly family members to a hospital 
uh, in a situation like this. We care for them at home and we allow them to live out their days at home. And uh, that helped me somewhat to realize, okay, so live out your days means he's dying. That was the answer to my question. I was asking, uh, is my dad dying or is he going to get better? Because I'm not getting an answer. And that was after a lot of pressure, but she was still, you know, somewhat vague. Then he comes in, I asked him the same question. And he had the guts and he looked at me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, to keep your dad alive beyond God's calling him home through this stroke would be torture. And I said, wow, the first straight answer I've gotten ever. And uh, I said, so when can I expect him to die? And he said, if we do nothing and we don't treat, he said, if we don't feed him, we don't, you know, hydrate him and, and all these things that he should be able to do on his own that he can't do on his own, uh, then he's probably got about five days. And he said, and this is where palliative care becomes an option. And, you know, you help him to manage, you know, any discomfort that may be associated with that process of hospice. And I thought, man, um, that sounds cruel. Like I'm not going to feed or give my dad water and, and just let him die um, versus feeding him and giving him water and then letting him live in a state where he, he can't swallow on his own. He could, I mean, it would have been a feeding tube. Lord knows how long he would have lived in, in that scenario. And the question, you know, and again, I don't have the answer. I just know my, I knew my dad and he wouldn't have gone for that. So I said, no, we're going to, you know, let him, we're going to go with this palliative care. And that would be what he would want to do. But I say all of that to say that th these instances of life and death are so complicated and so shrouded by emotion and by other information that it, it's, it's always good to have, like you said, a respectful dialogue where we can really have a discussion because ultimately it's one's philosophy and what one believes on, you know, are we dealing with the carcass of a human or is this a, a living, breathing person that will maybe pass away in body but live eternally in their spirit, depending on what your beliefs are. And and it's comforting to, to deal with people, even though they're scientists, that understand these interesting nuances and can explain their science or at least stand behind the science and give you an answer. And lamentably, I think sometimes we don't get the answers we'd like even from the scientists. So it's hard to even follow the science. But um, that's where I'm at, Michael. And uh, I thank you for your kind words and for what you shared. I really do appreciate it. All right, Michael hung up. Well, thank you, Michael. <laughs> we'll uh, take a pause right here, come back to your calls and more. We've got calls from Michigan, Indiana, West Virginia, and New York. Straight ahead. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-482-5337. That's Valdez with an S. Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Let's go to Charleston, West Virginia, WCHS, and check in with Tommy. Hey, Tommy, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Uh, 
thank you, Mr. Valdez, for this opportunity. Uh, yes, sir. I found that the reparations report in California, and uh, it was very interesting, uh, especially uh, the point of chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that mean? Well, that well, means... The reference of uh, owning people as property. Right, as opposed to indentured slavery. Mm-hmm. Please understand that in this nation's history, in uh, um, sometime after 1600, not too long afterwards, uh, before the uh, African uh, or transatlantic slave trade began, uh, the uh, uh, mother country, uh, 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 closest thing we have to one, of uh, Great Britain, England, sent uh, in the course of, oh, 100 years, an easy 50,000 convicts to the Americas to serve out their sentences as uh, wards of sort of whatever uh, planter. And they did labor. Uh, The number of indentured slaves who were people, if you know, when Cromwell was had, had conquered Ireland. We're going to run out of time, Tommy. Speed it up. Okay. You have, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Seven years. Approximately half of those people died before the, uh, their seven years. Their term was up. Was up. Yeah. Why yeah, is it that mm-hmm. they are not, that they are not, uh, included in this concept. Right, in the reparations. Yeah. Yeah, it makes, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, listen, it, it's, and it's fascinating, right? Because I don't support this idea at all. Uh, I think that um, these people that are laying a claim to uh, a, a legitimate uh, grievance, right? It's a legitimate grievance. Slavery was wrong. Uh, both indentured servitude, both the chattel slavery, all of that. However, the... Um, how could you lay claim to something that you didn't experience? Right. I mean, it's, I can't cash in on a class action lawsuit that I wasn't aggrieved by. That's, and and that's what's happening here. They're not the aggrieved party. They just have to say, I'm a black person that, you know, and I happen to have been alive from 1970 till now uh, for, or for whatever years I've been alive, I can now cash in on this. And I think this is preposterous. (laughs) It's just crazy to think that just because you are black, you can cash in on slavery. I mean, it would have made sense you know, to those people who are actually the aggrieved party. And um, I, I just, I don't think that we could say, well, we're somehow related or ancestors. I mean, come on, this, this, it, it, this is a, um, a laughable situation and not because of, of what it is, but because of how they're approaching it. At least that's my thought. I think we lost Tommy in the midst of that. Uh, but thank you for your call, brother. Big shout out to everybody in West Virginia. And uh, we're going to continue with your calls uh, from Albany, New York, Shields, Michigan, Bedford, Indiana, and more straight ahead. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
Sarah in Bedford, Indiana, WBIW. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I want to say real quick, I'm in no way justifying the atrocities that happened in Texas with that mall shooter. However, the left, um, with the promotion of their version of racism and sexism and, you know, their prejudices that they promote, I think are in part responsible for radicalizing people. And they need to look in the mirror and look at their own prejudices because, um, you know, there's no middle ground anymore. There's no colorblind society or, you know, they're, they're not trying to promote justice. They're demanding reparations. And the solution they offer is horrible. And I, I've got to say this, um, the incel movement, I think, in part, is a response to what I call female supremacy. And, um, you know, if we're going to get along, we've got to drop judging each other by your sex or your, you know, race and stuff. And the left is not doing that. So thank you for Excellent having me on. Point. You're welcome, Sarah. Excellent points. Uh, I think I agree with you 100 percent. If we continue to, to go down that road, allowing uh, society to be fragmented in this way, we will never, ever get away from this. Uh, let's see. It's 56. We got. All right. Let's go with Phil Butte, Montana, KXTL quickly. Hey, yes. Uh, thanks, Rich. I just wanted to make a quick comment of reparations. I think it's ludicrous. And uh, when will it end? After child, yeah. child, after child, after child. One more quick comment. When are mm -hmm. we going to start dropping the African-American, African-American? We know you're black. It, you're just an American, right. not African-American. Well, again, this is, another, it's, this is another uh, instance of, of, of uh, nuance. It's one of those things where people are proud of their heritage. You know, for years I grew up with people that would say they were, you know, Irish Catholic. Uh, and, and it was important for them because there was a big Protestant movement uh, and, and there was a big rift, obviously, you know, with the uh, Northern Ireland and whatnot. So it was important for them to identify. Uh, again, I think uh, the idea of uh, Latino and Latina and now Latinx, um, these terms um, were all kind of derived by white academics looking to to create something other than the assimilation of everybody melting into the melting pot of Americanism. And I agree with you, uh, but I also celebrate people's individualism. And if somebody wants to say that they're African-American, black American, Haitian American, Ukrainian American, whatever type of American they want to be because they like to eat a certain meal, a certain way, a certain time and celebrate a certain way, then I'm all for that, too, because I love cultural celebrations and and I love rice and beans and all the food of my culture. So to me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of those guys that says, hey, live and let live. But you're right. I see all of us as Americans. And I think when we get cut, we should all bleed red, white, and blue. At least that's my vision for the country. Anyway, sorry to anybody who's still on hold. The music means they're kicking us out. But I'll be back again tomorrow. Take care. Good night. God bless. Hasta la próxima. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.